Katie, Katie, I have been instructed by you to ask you how you're doing. How are you doing? Thank you for asking, Jesse. I am pretty good, except that I have a severe weed hangover today. Have you ever had a weed hangover? I've had weed panic attacks, but not a a hangover. What does it feel like? Is it similar to an alcohol hangover? No, it is not similar to an alcohol hangover at all because it's not painful. You just sit around the day after, in my case, eating a bunch of edibles, contemplating the meaning of life. So in some ways, it's worse than than an alcohol hangover. No headache, just a lot of existential questions. I saw my oldest friend and him and his wife were recently at like a barbecue with their kids and with a lot of other people's kids. And they gobbled down a few very tasty lemon squares oh, no. only to find out after that they were edibles that were oh, not well no. labeled. How did that go? Uh, it, it was a challenge. I think they each had one. My friend almost had two, but then the last minute his wife was like, oh, I'll have that. And then Wait, so did just- the kids have it? No, no, I'm sorry. The kids didn't have it. The parents oh, did that. Oh, too bad. And then they had to raise their kids. The story would have been way better if the kids had taken it. I know. Them. I should just start over and tell it differently. All right. I think that's enough small talk for today. What do you think? Should we move on? <laughs> I do. I was informed that uh, our last episode, we forgot to introduce a podcast. So let's do it very quickly twice. Uh, what, Katie, what's the name of this podcast? This is Blocked and Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. I'm Jesse Single. Katie, what's the name of this podcast? This is Blocked and Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. I'm Jesse Single. Uh, we are all caught up. And this week, uh, we have a very special interview with Greg Lukianoff of FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. We are finally, after multiple requests, going to get more into some of this critical race theory stuff. Greg, he um, has, you know, a lot of complicated thoughts on these laws, and, and we get into it. He is uh, opposed to some of them, thinks some of them are reasonable. It's a really interesting conversation. We'll hopefully add some nuance to what has been a remarkably dumb online conversation, even by the standards of online conversations. It's also been a dumb offline conversation. And my preference would be never talking about CRT, but it's just unavoidable at this point. It is dominating so much of the cultural conversation right now that we are going to dive the fuck into it. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna we we had to. But first, uh, we have a uh, a very alarmingly transphobic puppet show, right? (laughs) Yes, transphobic puppets. It's a huge problem. Yeah, we've been we've been trying to speak out about this, but we have a really disturbing example. Uh, Katie, give the basics on this one. You sort of spearheaded this. So there is a British puppeteer named Barnaby Dixon. I assume that is his given name. That is the most possible British name I could come up with. So I hope that it's real. I was going to say if I had to immediately if I had to immediately pretend to be British and give a fake name, I'd be like uh, Barnaby Dixon. Yeah, yeah. So let's just assume that it's real. So he's best known um, for he does like puppet stuff for big series like the recent uh, Dark Crystal update on Netflix. He has a million over a million subscribers on Instagram and YouTube. Um, and he it, his work is it's hard to describe. So we're gonna put links to all this everything that we talk about in the show notes. His stuff is pretty cool. Do you think it's cool? Yeah, I mean, this was my first uh, exposure to it. I was pretty impressed with what I saw. I I liked a lot. Yeah, so most of what he does on his YouTube, uh, his YouTube page is sort of goofy with these puppets that I don't know if he's created them or if he's just like the puppeteer behind them. But he has a couple of main characters. One of them is a bird named Dabchick. um, And another one is a fish. Okay, so here's just, this is just a sample of one of his videos. This is from 2018. The British voice that you're going to hear is this bird character he has, Dabchick. And then this starts with some purring, and that's because it's about a cat. So just listen to this. Yeah, that's right, people. We got a new cat. So, after scouring Gumtree, we popped up to North Bristol some drizzly afternoon last month to take a little look at a litter. Okay, so there's a there's a black one. Uh, so I'm no, I mean, I don't, it's just that there's some other black cats in our neighbourhood, and we wouldn't want to muddle them up. You know, not that all black cats look the same. It's just, oh dear. So yeah, we went with the one with popcorn stuck to her bumhole, and we're going to call her Matilda. So Jesse, as you can tell from this, it's extremely British, um, but also he does have this sense of humor, this like slightly off-color sense of humor. This was made in 2018. The joke that he's making is sort of a joke about sort of the awareness of racism. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, yeah. It's like he's just sort of gently riffing on like uh, the hypersensitivity to the idea of being perceived as racist. Right, right. So- You can tell from this that he has maybe a little bit of an unorthodox sense of humor. Yeah, yeah, for sure. 
Very, he's just British. British people are really fucked up in general, yeah. Of course, yeah. I mean, they're all racist. I mean, Barnaby Dixon, you might as well just like fucking put a KKK hood on. They tried to colonize a country that we rightfully discovered and claimed for ourselves. <laughs> I'm going to stop that. If my, if my understanding of the history is correct, it might not be. So recently, Barnaby Dixon has gotten a little bit more into politics. And he interviewed Sasha Ayad in early June. Jesse, what do you know about Sasha? She's one of the few American gender clinicians who who I think basically – and the, the language here gets so fraught and complicated, but she's basically not in favor of the affirming model. And the affirming model means different things. It's almost like CRT. It sort of means different things to different people. But the basic idea is that if a kid strongly insists they're trans, they're really a boy or a girl despite their body – you you support that and and I don't think Ayad is pretty clear that um she's not going to like argue with her clients or disagree with them but she's part of a cohort that is skeptical of the idea that we should be transitioning a lot of kids and she believes that gender dysphoria is often the result of other stuff that can be worked through through talk therapy right and and this position that Sasha has taken has put her in a sort of put her at odds with some trans activists. I interviewed her recently and she has had f- complaints filed against her from trans activists trying to get her to lose her license. So she has faced some like some real professional consequences. Both of these complaints, nothing happened with them because they were not legitimate. Um, but she's faced some like real consequences for not following the, the affirming model. Yeah. And, and I mean, to me, my, my response to someone who doesn't follow the affirming model is, would be very different if they were like literally trying to talk kids out of the idea that they were trans or trying to really affect how they express themselves. I don't see any sign she's doing that. And I mean, I'm overall in favor of like careful exploration of this stuff, especially for teenagers or, or near teenagers where like they might go on really serious drugs. We don't have long-term data on in a youth setting. So um, I think people are way too flippant about the youth medical stuff. I've written about that recently. I'm working on another piece about it. So in uh, that, I don't know too much about her practice, but I think I'm on board with her general idea that we should explore the causes and nature of dysphoria before jumping to, um, I don't know, less reversible stuff. Okay. So uh, Barnaby Dixon has Sasha on his show and it's an it's not like your typical interview by any means, in part because it's conducted by puppets. Um, so we'll play part of this. This is the beginning where uh, he is introducing Sasha, and it starts with the fish. This is Philip the fish talking to Cassandra, a mermaid doll. Oh, hello there. Many welcomes to you. Many kisses, too. All for you. There you go. I was wondering, do you think Cassandra feels more like a human or a fish? A mer or a maid? I was asking her, but she she doesn't answer me. She covers her boobies like a human lady, but no underpants. Like fish. I also wear no underpants, but firstly, I am a fish, and secondly, nobody has complained. So far, what if your sense of your own identity does not match how you appear to others? Would it be difficult? Maybe. Now, this is a tricky subject, but to share her perspective on this matter, we have invited a licensed professional counselor, Sasha Ayad. So let's get to just a little bit of the interview so you can hear what sort of the tone of the interview. So I have a friend and colleague named Stella O'Malley. She's actually the co-host of a podcast that we run together. And um, she had a gender issue as a child. Now, at the time, she was not taken to any doctors, but she insisted that she should have been a boy for many years in her childhood. She dressed as a boy. She called herself a boy. And around puberty, she started to feel very distressed. Now, ultimately for Stella, The difficulty of puberty helped her realize that biology is bigger than she is. And she actually ended up outgrowing her distress. And she's quite happy as a woman. She's married and has children now. Uh, But she's a great example of a person who has struggled with their gender, but had that resolve on its own with time and space. That is interesting, Sasha. Let me think for a moment. Okay. Thank you. So, if Sasha's friend, what's her name? Uh, Stella had changed to become Stan, let's say. Uh, Maybe she would not have had her children and feel quite so happy uh, now. 
Maybe that depends if she likes her children. Right. So this is like, I, I, it's funny, before we recorded, I'm working on this long newsletter piece that touches on this idea of desistance. This is this finding that for a significant number of kids who feel gender dysphoric or feel like they're trans at a young age, it'll go away in time. If you Google that, you will see a lot of people acting like the research has been like debunked. It it really hasn't. I'll include a link in the show notes to some work I've done on this explaining that this has not been debunked. But as far as I'm concerned, um, you know, Sasha is explaining a thing that happens. It does go away on its own in time, which would push you in the direction of we shouldn't rush into transition, right? Right. So nothing that she said will be shocking to to regular listeners of this podcast or people who've read your work or who've, who've read my work. This is probably not something that you're going to hear on, you know, an NPR show about about transition. Um, so but to, you know, to, <laughs> to those of us who've been following this closely, nothing about what she said was shocking. However, Jesse, what do you think the response was when uh, Barney B. Dixon released this video? Not good. I would imagine uh, a lot of people are upset about it. Yeah, I think that would uh, be putting it mildly. Barnaby Dixon got flooded with negative comments and released a follow-up video called Responding to Criticism. So this video, it starts with the bird, Dabchik, who is not in the, the initial video with Sasha. It starts with him sort of checking in after being offline. He opens his computer and he sees just this flood of negative comments. And it starts off, so the video starts off with showing like dozens probably of these comments of people, you know, calling Barnaby Dixon a, a transphobe and a bigot or, or whatever. Um, and then it goes to Philip the Philosophish who interviewed Sasha. So let's play uh, Let's play the, the beginning of this episode here. What the freaking heck have you done? Oh, hello, Dabzik. Uh, what seems to be the problem? What seems to be a problem? The problem is you released a transphobic video on my channel. I did not. Well, why are people saying you did? Well, maybe they see it a different way. That's okay. Oh, okay, it's okay then. Have you seen the comments and look how many freaking dislikes? Ah, yes, but lots more likes. And plenty of the comments were constructive. Listen, Dabsik, we discussed a difficult subject, and Miss Sasha Ayad's perspective does seem to get a little misrepresented. So no harm in having a listen and seeing what we can learn. Yeah, whatever, Phil. <laughs> Sounds like you flipping softball this fruity. I'm going to find some of the critiques, and I'm going to give this dummy the grilling you couldn't. And you need to have a long, hard think about what you've done. Well, long hard thinks are my speciality. Okay, so he does something interesting. He calls Sasha back. So the bird, what you're hearing is the bird calling Sasha on FaceTime. So let's go to the next clip. Hello, who's this? Oh, really? Who, who is this? This is Dabchik, you utter doofus. I, I'm the chick that's allowed to have opinions on this channel. Oh, I am sorry, Sasha. I, I hope you are not busy. It's okay, Phil. I'm just brushing my cap. Oh, that is a lovely cat. Oh my gosh, shut up, both of you. Sasha, I accuse you of having a perspective that is harmful to the trans community, and you actively put them in danger by sharing it. Okay, well, plenty of trans people actually agree with my approach. And besides, what makes you think the detractors speak for all trans people? Uh, because they say they do, and they're very loud and very angry, obviously. <laughs> yeah, what's, what's interesting about this is, like, how... To me, very cleverly, like I, so, I'm I'm familiar with this overall debate about the literature, and I, I obviously side largely with Sasha. But I think this was a clever way of addressing that moment when there is a flood of such vitriol that the average bystander will be like, "Why would people be this mad at someone unless they've done something really wrong?" Right. So what follows for the rest of the video is basically a second interview with Sasha. So this this what you what you might think would be this sort of apology video ends up basically reinforcing her position. She talks about, you know, puberty blockers, the danger or the side effects, uh, the, the, the statistics on desistance, the lack of data when it comes to things like blockers. Um, she talks about media coverage and she talks mostly about the need to be cautious. Well, but, but they do along the way. They also, they address specific, uh, critiques yeah. too. It's not like they just relitigate the message. It's like an actual conversation, which I find useful. Oh, totally. Yeah. He just, it's like a second interview. Um, okay. So this ends with, I really love the ending here. So, uh, let's play this last part. Okay. Uh, Philip, I think I might need to have a little chat with a certain segment of my audience. 
Dabsik, you have been drinking. Are, are you sure you want Yeah, to? I'm right at that level of intoxication where everything starts to make sense. Okay, my little dingleberries, there'll come a time in all of your lives when you will hear an opinion that you don't like. You can do one of two things. You could either decide that that opinion is somehow bad or harmful and shout all sorts of names and attribute all sorts of motivations in the hope that the opinion will go away. Or you could consider the possibility that the person might have some important nuance to add to the subject and shutting down the conversation could actually harm the very people you claim to be defending. Oh, well, Dabsy, uh, that was surprisingly measured. What? Did I say something? So- sorry, I blacked out. Yeah, I mean, none of this, you know, this is all considered a crazy thing to think that there could be differences of opinion because we're so used to tagging one side of a debate like this as like harmful or violent. So I was just I was impressed with the way uh, Barnaby handled this whole thing. And 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 I got to say, like, I know there was a big splurge of uh, surge splurge. <laughs> A big uh, jizz of complaints, um, and uh, and they in this second video he he did this he flashed through a, a ton of them. But in both videos, actually, you actually did see in the t- comments you saw a lot of like respectful conversation, including among people who disagree. That could just be this particular audience, but it wasn't all just screaming and vitriol. I did think there was some. Um, you know, productive conversation here. Yeah, what I love about this is that he refuses to apologize, but he doesn't, besides calling his audience dingleberries, which I think is a a term of affection, um, he's not condescending towards them, but he also refuses to sort of compromise his position, which is that sometimes you're going to hear some things that you don't like and you need to to take other people's uh, perspectives into account and not sort of go immediately to the the hate speech and the attempts to shut people down. Yeah, I was so it's that lack of apology that really inspired me because so many times you see this script play out where someone like says something they think is reasonable and which is reasonable, but then everyone gets mad at them and they they just instantly fold and apologize. It reminded me, I um I won't name names, but I recently got together with a journalist who'd had some pretty unfair shit happen to them. And they were telling me about all all their longtime friends in journalism who would privately support this person but would not say so publicly because there's such a climate of fear and of being seen as saying the wrong thing. And I um, – you know, that's specific to journalism, but it's just – a lot of it's human nature. Yeah, it's true. I, I talked to a guy recently who also uh, – a journalist who has um – been basically canceled and he put it a really he we were sort of talking about this same phenomenon where you know private support uh public silence basically and he put it in an interesting way he said we were talking about specific people that he knew and he would say you know these people they know how to read the room and <laughs> yeah. i think that he's 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 got a good point but also like our job as journalists is should not be to read the room no. it should be to not read the room that exact expression came up when i talked to my person this like jur- yes exactly reading the room is poison to good journalism or to good creativity if you're a youtube creator yeah to comedy to art you should be as dense as possible that's the the rule that i live by be as blind as possible is that is that ableist blind just be completely oblivious to everything yeah exactly that's right tone deaf (laughs) leave it at that all right we will post links to all these uh videos in the show notes there barnaby dixon despite the fact that he is british is a his puppeteering is pretty fucking cool very cool Okay, just our uh, normal housekeeping. You can always reach out to us at blockedreportedpodcast at gmail.com. You can get our merch at barpod.org. Flying off the shelves as always. Get it before it's gone. We have a subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash blockedreported. And we always appreciate it if you can review us, positively of course, on Apple Podcasts, where I believe we are currently enjoying a sizzling 4.7. Uh, Katie, you wanted to, uh, to introduce a, a sexy new feature, right? Yes. Jesse didn't mention this, but we have a subscription-based program at patreon.com slash blocked and reported. If you go there and you join us for just $5 a month, you get three extra episodes of this podcast every month. There are also live chats. There are ask me anything. There's a whole community there. It's a great, it's a, a great service, best value in media. And we are today announcing a new feature for our patrons, a dating service. What? Yes, this idea came from one of our listeners who posted about this on our subreddit. This person requested that we bring, because we bring people together, we might as well make it official. So 
for single people on this podcast or maybe people in open relationships or just people who want to cheat on their spouses, we are no one to judge. If you send us a classified ad through Patreon, we will read it on air. Include your email address so we can forward any replies that you can get, and then you can take it from there. So wait, Katie, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you this. We are, and I'm, I'm asking this on mic. So we're going to read all during patrons only episodes. No, we are going to. We're get, no, oh. no, we'll do it through because then only patrons can date each other. We can. I I figure uh, we just read one out on every show. Yeah, I like that. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> we're working this out as we go. Yep. <laughs> okay, so patrons. Send us your classified ads. Keep them short. Include your email address. Disclaimer, we cannot be held liable for any bad dates or murder situations that occur through this service. By participating in the Blocked and Reported Dating Service, you take on all personal, emotional, sexual, and legal responsibility. It's a lot of sexual responsibility. <laughs> also, please, uh, veiled anti-Semitism is okay, but not <laughs> So I'm really excited about this. I think we can really make some like love connections happen. And maybe people will start, you know, get together, have some children, name them after us, name them Katie, and then name the second one Katie and the third one Katie as well. I hope you're right. We did try to do advice. Like we're going to do sort of a Dan Savage style advice episode. I think we only got two submissions and they weren't, they weren't quite right. So I hope more people take advantage of this. This can um, tie into your belief that the lesbians are being driven to the edge of extinction. We can help the three remaining lesbians find one another. Yeah. I think this, with the, the request on Reddit, actually, it specifically mentioned lesbians and horse fuckers. <laughs> Uh, yeah, let's let's give this a shot. Fuck it. What if we we're gonna create so many babies through our podcast, even more than we already have? We're gonna make the overpopulation problem way worse. The overpopulation of podcast listeners. They're gonna call it the bar pod boom of the uh, 2020s. <laughs> okay, so if you're a patron, send a message with just a a short. Well, should we have a cap on the length? It can't be that long. How long? Just make it short. Make it like three lines. All right. So like a uh, single Brooklyn podcaster seeks manic pixie dream girl to go oh, to national God. concerts. That one I'm just going to delete. <laughs> All right, folks. So join us at patreon.com slash blocked and reported. All right. What's uh, next? We have uh, our interview with uh, Greg Lukianoff, right? Right. So Greg is probably familiar to a lot of our listeners because in addition to being the head of FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, he is also the author, along with Jonathan Haidt, of The Coddling of the American Mind, a book that has had great influence on both of us and I think a lot of our listeners as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good book. I, I um, included a link both to it in my review of it in New York Magazine, but uh, yeah, it's worth checking out. Um, so the reason we had decided to have Greg on the show is because he wrote an essay for FIRE about this current spate of laws on critical race theory, looking at both these laws in higher education and in K-12, which is what we're going to focus on for most of the interview. Um, we'll add a link to the essay in the show notes. It's a 13-point essay. It's long. It's nuanced. He makes a lot of good points. And the response to it was basically him getting dogpiled by people on both sides of this debate. Yeah. And we should say other, other, it, it was co-authored. He uses the uh, first person singular, but other people, they put a lot of time into this. It's like 5,000 words. I learned a lot from it. So I think it's worth a read. Yeah. His, his piece is called 13 important points in the ca- campus and K-12 critical race theory debate. And it is co-authored with Adam Goldstein, Bonnie Snyder, and Ryan Weiss. Yep. Highly recommend it. Uh, anything else or should we just throw to the interview? No, let's, uh, let's hear from Greg. Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. First, let's get to the reason that we are unfortunately all here: critical race theory. <laughs> Greg, if yeah. you could, uh, if you could picture for a moment, a listener has just woken up from a coma. <laughs> I am so jealous of this listener. By the way, this listener who who does not know what CRT is, I want to be this listener. Sorry, go ahead. Hopefully, the listener also uh, doesn't know that Donald Trump was president. That we went through a global. There's going to be a lot to to explain to this listener, but. For the sake of this conversation, how the hell do you explain what is going on in this moment? Oh, my God. Um, well, I tried to uh, explain it in a 5,000-word piece because I felt like the discussion wasn't as rich and nuanced as it needed to be, um, which was mostly well-received, but also, you know, exploded in different ways. So, um, most important thing to know is that there is something called critical race theory, and there are things that an activist named Chris Rufo is calling critical race theory. And they're not really the same thing, um, but they do overlap to a degree. And mostly what Chris Rufo is getting at is kind of a, uh, like, um, 
collegiate version of identity politics with a very strong emphasis on group identity. That, that, of course, people always bring up, it's kind of like, well, they, they believe that race is a, is a construction. Like, yes, but it also is, it's, it explains the entire world to a degree. So there's, there's, uh, you know, as a heavy emphasis on group guilt, it's, when I first learned about it, for example, it was when I was in law school, and that's appropriate because CRT originally comes from law schools. And it was where I heard one of my best friends, you know, um, when he started dating a woman from Smith, you know, explained that, um, uh, racism isn't, uh, defined as just being, you know, hating someone because of their race or overgeneralizing. It's now you have to have power. And if you don't have power, it's not racism anymore. And I remember hearing that. I'm like, that's a, that's not a, that's a, that's a really bad idea for a generally pluralistic society. So, I mean, everybody who's been on campus, particularly, um, at, I went to Stanford for law schools, uh, some of these campuses, you hear about this stuff quite a bit. And Rufo has kind of connected this all in a big sort of basket, <laughs> uh, that word's been tainted, a big basket of, um, uh, of ideas uh, that he, uh, has set up on the, the sort of like crusade to eliminate from higher education and K through 12. And, uh, across the country, um, legislatures have passed these rules that are trying to quote unquote ban CRT, um, in higher education. These are, these are some of the worst laws I've seen in my career because it's laughably unconstitutional to try to tell, um, uh, schools, uh, that they can't teach ideas, uh, you know, forbidden ideas about race and gender and all this kind of stuff. It, it's not, it's not even laughably. It's like particularly bad. K through 12 teachers and students. And that, that appears to be the current focus. They do not. Uh, they do not have full First Amendment rights the way uh, call uh, higher education folks at public settings do. How does that question of like exactly what rights people have in K twelve settings interact with this debate? Because in some cases, you guys are opposed to stuff that that can legally be passed. It's not unconstitutional, right? Right. Well, it's it, it's that's what I was trying to do in the five thousand word piece because people were there. There was starting to be sort of like a wave against all of these laws that where some of the nuance seemed to be falling out. And one of the ones that I, I felt like was starting to happen was people were starting to assume that the K through 12 laws that say you can't teach the following things and people should, and I want to be really clear, read the actual laws, because in some cases you'll find stuff that's not nearly as horrifying as you think, like singling people out, on, just telling, telling kids that, you know, one race is superior to the other, like reappears all throughout the stuff, stuff that actually is arguably punishable under title six, uh, but I don't want to get too far into, into that. But when it comes to the law from higher education, and K through 12, they're just night and day. They're, they're just, they're very different when it comes to things like curriculum. Um, so the state, uh, state legislatures have a role in deciding curriculum in virtually every state in the country. And th this was kind of falling out to a degree because I didn't want people thinking that they could go out there and challenge these things in court and likely win if they were just doing from K through 12. Now, when it comes to the free speech rights of students, so, uh, the, 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 the people, the free speech rights you should be concerned about in K through 12 are the free speech rights of the students themselves. That's the most important free speech right. That's the one where we think that there's been a big erosion of free speech rights of, of K through 12 students. We're, we were very actually pleased that Mahanoy, the, the, the Supreme Court case about the fuck, you know, fuck cheer uh, case. I mean, really, fuck cheer. Well, fuck cheer. <laughs> I, I, she's totally right. We should give a little background on that. Well, it was a student who uh, put on Snapchat, um, you know, I forget what exactly the scenario was. She got turned down for varsity. I think she didn't make varsity. She said, fuck cheer. Uh, this was off campus on Snapchat. And then she was banned from her cheer team for a year. It was a quadrafuckia. Um, she, <laughs> she said, like, fuck cheer, fuck something else, fuck everything. I mean, it's like nice and thorough. But it was on Snapchat. Uh, so, you know, the idea there is that it goes to her 250 friends and they erase it. But of course, someone took a screenshot. And the next thing you know, she's being punished um, for saying this. Now, the reason why it's a little bit of a of a mediocre free speech opinion in a lot of people's opinions, but as far as I was concerned, oh, and so the Supreme Court found on behalf of of the student, they they, they said that she should not have been um, you know kicked out, she should not have been punished. This was free speech. It was off campus. It was extracurricular. It was she was using a system where she was trying to keep it among her friends. Um, and people, some uh, some some people looked at it and saying this isn't that helpful of an opinion. 
But the reason why I find it heartening is because the Supreme Court had like a billion outs. There was a million different ways they could have figured out how to not find for this student. And they didn't they didn't take any of them. They could have just said, oh, but this is just an internal cheer thing, for example. So they can punish their own and the rules are different when you're when you're in a team. So um, the Supreme Court found for the free speech rights of, of, of the of the angry cheerleader. Um, and we think of that as actually good progress. But overall, the free speech rights of K through 12 students has been eroded to a degree since Tinker or v. Des Moines, which is the famous, you know, arm ban case. Um, but when people talk about the free speech rights of, of, of K-12 teachers, um, and I also agree, by the way, that K-12 teachers have too little ec- extramural free speech rights, that, that getting, in, getting in trouble for what they say off the job or what they, you know, writing, a, writing a, an op-ed, that kind of stuff, I think that their free speech rights have become too weak as well. But if you actually start to, th- but when people start to say, it's like, yes, but this is a speech code for the whole country, and when you're applying it to K-12, through it's not exactly right, because K-12 through curriculum is considered to be the government speaking. And I just, I, for whatever dumb reason... Like, I felt like as we're getting more into K through 12, I had to be really clear that these are not the same things. And um, I have uh, suffered appropriately for it. (laughs) Yes, I saw some of the uh, some of the responses to your piece, which is one of the reasons (laughs) I wanted to talk to talk to you, which because you seem to make everybody mad, which I think is uh, is definitely a sign that you're doing something right. Actually, the funny thing is we mostly come down. I'd say we 85 percent come down on the critical of these laws because we even point out that even if they're constitutional, they're vague and confusing and they could lead to all sorts of problems and actual implementation. But nonetheless, they are constitutional. And the one thing that I tried to, and I, and I, I always try to do this, is make the point that um, that this is not a hallucination. When, when, when people actually said things like, oh, this is just a moral panic, I'm like, no, it's actually not just a moral panic. I've been talking to parents all across the country about this. And then, of course, people move over to, it's like, oh, you're defending Chris Rufo. I'm like, no, I'm talking to the, uh, it's the parents that I've heard um, about this kind of aggressive um, identity politics that they're running into, and, and they don't they don't like it. Um, so I mentioned those are the two things that got me in trouble. Um, what were one, I, I, I pointed out that this is probably constitutional, and two, that the parents aren't completely hallucinating this. And I had two biggish people on the Twitters, uh, here and was it what's the other guy, oh, this guy's name? Michael, was it Michael Hobbs? My, Michael Hobbs, who I've never heard of. And they took a tweet where I said, and I'm, you know, author of Coddling the American Mind here, um, that I something like, why is there not, um, the, uh, they try to justify, uh, the, one of the laws was on a ban on causing someone anguish on the basis of race or sex. Um, which is one of the strongest languages. It's the closest to mirroring the actual um, standard for unprotected harassment, which is severe, pervasive, probably not quite there, but nonetheless. And I, I guess, stupidly mentioned at the end of the, at the tweets, like, you know, like the, the being concerned about mental health is, it, and since I had to do it in a tweet, I didn't say it as with as many words, but being concerned about the mental health of students is understandable given that there's been this absolute crater of mental health, uh, um, outcomes for, you know, 10, 10 to 22 year olds. Like young people are in serious trouble. And this is me doing what I try to always do when I'm writing, not strictly as an advocate, when I'm writing more kind of, you know, my coddling type stuff, is try to really see where people are coming from. This got interpreted by Michael Hobbs and Jeet here as president of of a free speech organization thinks white kids should be protected from offense. And I'm like... Wow, really? Um, and, and the funny thing is you had to go actually into the tweets. And it was also a reminder that we should, I should not write 32 tweet long tweet storms because it just gives people too much material to take out of context. And I, and I usually don't engage with trolls. I actually didn't think Jeet was a troll, but I was a little disappointed there. And Hobbes, you know, it's one of these things he called me like unbelievably disingenuous. And I'm like, I've been accused of a lot of things, but disingenuous? Yes, I decided to write this, this thoughtful 5,000 word piece. Piece that I knew would make the other side happy out of what? Like personal gain? You know, the, the idea here was essentially to really try to parse through these, parse through them seriously, take both sides seriously. I still came on overwhelmingly against the laws, but apparently I was a heretic nonetheless. Yeah. One of the difficulties of this conversation and one of the, uh, the annoying things about it, and one of the reasons I wish the whole thing would just fucking disappear is that there's <laughs> so much bad faith on both sides and, 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 oh and, the, and the sides are not actually talking about the same thing no and that's one of my points in it it, it is that they're talking they're talking right past each other because yeah. on the one side they're saying you don't want to t- teach about slavery and the, you know the parents are saying i don't want my kid to be to, to have a really strong sense that he's part of a of a white 
identity group. There's not good quality control in DEI and diversity, equity, inclusion. There's a lot of like really wacky trainings that in some cases, and you provide some evidence of this in your post, have taken hold in schools. And that's bad. It's not a world historical problem. But I think in part because of like, I like I like Jeet here, but he does do that because you get that kind of response from like the Jeet here's and the and the Michael Hobbs of the world, where if you have any critiques, you're basically Hitler. Because who else would want want to criticize that stuff? It just makes for a very <laughs> super Hitler. super super duper Hitler. It just makes for a very unhealthy like intellectual ecosystem. I think. Well, and there's also the the fact that uh, you mentioned this in your piece, Greg. Chris Rufo has he said this on Twitter that he was going to redefine the term critical race theory so that when anybody hears about these sort of illiberal diversity trainings, anti-racist trainings, whatever, in schools or in offices, the first thing that comes to mind is critical race theory. I don't know why he chose this particular term because the term already exists and it does have a meaning, a specific meaning. And so when his critics say, you're not talking about critical race theory, they're sort of right. In some cases, they are sort of right because he has redefined the term. So I don't know why he didn't, if he wanted to go on this mission, which honestly, part of me thinks that this is sort of about his own political ambitions. He has oh, yeah. been incredibly successful at becoming, at becoming famous in this country just in the yeah. last like six months through this campaign. And, and meanwhile, kind of like, and, and that's why I have to, I can't stop stressing this. He's helped foment one of the worst legislative attacks I've seen on academic freedom, um, in my, you know, in, in my main job of 20 years, going after higher education, saying that what they can and cannot say. Okay. So let's talk about, let's talk about this a little bit. Mm-hmm. Let's work through some of the bills here. Um, will sure. you, will you pick out some of the most sort of egregiously bad bills and the ones that you think are slightly better? There are dozens of bills with possibly hundreds of amendments. Um, so you're talking about just, um, and at this point now there's probably, you know, hundred bills with probably getting closer to a thousand. Um, when it comes to the ones that are, you know, poorly thought out, the ones that just have like, uh, the, uh, th- that go after punishing sort of just divisive ideas. Way too vague, way too broad. Almost all of the ones as applied to higher education, even the ones that don't sound that bad in some cases, um, are uh, have chunks at least that are that are clearly too vague and broad. And that's the and vagueness and, and broadness are, are the two are, are the two primary ways you sort of analyze uh, laws for facial unconstitutionality under the First Amendment. And that just means that. You look at the wording of this, you know, like, let's say, like, Congress tried to pass something saying that you should not, you, sh- thou shall not disrespect Congress. Um, that would be laughably unconstitutional because while in theory it might include some speech that's not protected, it would, it would be too vague and too broad and, and immediately shot down. So, so when it, um, so some of the really basic stuff, even like, uh, banning stuff that causes people anguish, for example, that would be probably considered too vague and too broad as applied to K through 12. The analysis. Oh, and in terms of ones that are uh, probably like I wouldn't necessarily want to go into court to challenge them. Uh, North Carolina had one that really focused on compelled speech. Um, and I think other parts of it were really unconstitutional. Uh, but there was one part where it was the entire subsection was about you should not compel students to say the following things or take the following positions. And it's like, if that's your case, then you're on very firm constitutional ground, which is also one of the reasons why I'd like people to actually go read some of these bills. Because, yes, um, a lot of them have unconstitutional um uh, parts in them, uh, but at the same time, they're probably not, they probably don't look like a lot of people who are who think they have their mind made up that these are. Uh, they, they probably look more nuanced than you might think. Is, is, isn't the logical chain of the the ones that um, the you that you think there's the most justifiable concern about the logical chain is basically you have to go to school so that yeah. if in a school setting you're compelled to, for example state your privileged or, or list your privileges or put yourself in, in reference to another group on some hierarchy of oppression. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of stuff where you're basically compelling people to make a political point they might not have come to themselves, right? Yeah. And, and that comes out of what, you know, uh, what I would call fires kind of lodestar opinion, like the one that, and it's also opinion that just everybody should listen to. We even did a recording of Nadine Strawson, the former um, head of the ACLU and a, and, a, and a good friend. She did a recording of the reading of the 1943 opinion Barnett, the West Virginia Board of Education, uh, because it's also, it's like a poem. Like it's a beautiful poem about what it means to live in a free society. And it's all about whether or not you can make students, uh, pledge allegiance to the flag and salute the flag in this weird, creepy sort of Hitlerian kind of, uh, uh salute, uh, that, that people used to do, believe it or not, back in the 1930s. You used to, uh, thrust your arm with your hand open, kind of like an Evita, uh, towards the, 
uh, towards the flag. And initially, the Supreme Court got it wrong in a case called Gobitis and said, no, no, schools can do this. And then in 1943, they come out with this gorgeous opinion saying, no, 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 that is not us. We do not do that. We do not uh, let public schools say tell people what shall be orthodox in nationalism, religion, etc., um, and that essentially compelled speech became this thing that rightfully um, ha- has a very special place in sort of First Amendment. It, that, that it's, mu- it's not it's considered even worse to tell people what they must say than what they what they can't say. Okay, so we know that some of these bills are constitutional. Some of them probably aren't, and will face challenges. But that doesn't necessarily make them good or right. So right. can you talk about some of your criticisms beyond the constitutionality? Oh, sure. Yeah. There, there, you know, there are ones that talk about, you know, making, and, and again, the analysis completely changes when you're talking about um, K through 12. So w- when they have things about not causing students uh, feelings of guilt, um, the that's laughably unconstitutional in higher ed. Um, but you might uh, you might be able to to uh, get get away with it in K through twelve where you're writing curriculum, but it's still terribly vague. It still leads to the argument that maybe you couldn't teach about slavery, maybe you couldn't teach about Jim Crow, maybe you couldn't teach maybe you couldn't teach about privilege. You know, for example. So there's a lot of bad guidance that leads to uh, critics appropriately saying like, how on earth are we actually supposed to teach American history um, with with all of the horrible things? Uh, you know, so the great things that America did and the horrible things that America did. How can we teach Teach it with these kind of constraints. Now, the reason why that argument is a, is once again a little different in K through twelve, though, is that the weird thing about these Rufoian laws is that they kind of create a negative curriculum, and we don't know what the positive curriculum that's going to come out of it looks like. They're saying don't teach this, but but um, uh, with an idea, but you should also teach this. Some of them even try to say it's like, but you have to teach slavery and you have to teach this, and and, and it, um, it shouldn't interfere with redlining. Um, what's actually going to come out of this mess? I don't know, but it's really important for people to, you know, go to their Bonnie Schneider. She, she's our K through 12 person at, at fire and she's coming out with a book called undoctrinate. It's coming out in September and she's writing a piece that I think is coming out in persuasion talking about how everybody, I don't care where you are in this, go to your school board meetings, your local, your, your local school board meetings. If you don't believe any of this stuff is going on, go and, you know, possibly be reassured. If you believe this is a problem, go and ask questions because the curriculum hasn't actually been written. We just have these weird, monolithic, confusing laws um, that are supposed to set the, the opposite, the parameters to a degree. It's so annoying. It's a big culture war mess. I've noticed this weird thing among people who like, you know, are so worried about oppression and and government tyranny, but it's sometimes like, it's like their first response to anything they don't like is to make a law banning it. And, and that's, um, it's just the, the, you know, potential for unintended consequences for a lawsuit. (laughs) It's it's definitely going to happen. There there are, and they're going to be lawsuits. Well, and not only that, but if you don't write these laws so carefully, you can get teachers in – I mean, you pointed this out, but you can get teachers in trouble yeah. teaching stuff we want taught. It's just – when I you know, when I say I'm exhausted by it, I don't mean it's an entirely manufactured controversy. And I think I – maybe more so than Katie um, – I've been I've pushed in the direction of of thinking you and Height uh, are are on the right track and worrying about this stuff. I thought in 2015 it was like basically, you know, this is these are just crazy college students who cares. I, I think it's bad. I just also think both the like you said both sides of it are so bad faith, and it is sometimes painted in this sort of like apocalyptic good versus evil light that I think. Uh, uh, screams over actual conversation debate. Yeah, I mean, this equity stuff is real. This is happening. A Washington state where I live, they they've had a state equity plan in place since, or at least have been talking about it for at least. What does it look like? Um, well, it's I'm looking at the PDF right now, and it's 275 pages. So I'll have to get back to you on that. But the date <laughs> is from 2015. So th- so this was one version of it. So they've been talking about this in Washington state, which of course is one of the more progressive states. I think this thing often happens where. In and we've talked about this in in the context of, of trans stuff before. In a, you know there'll be some cultural issue, whether it's race or trans stuff or whatever, and there's a response on the right to things that are actually happening on the left. And I think that's what's happening right now, where you do have these equity agendas popping up all over the all, all over the country in different blue states. These are real. Some of them are probably good. Some of them are probably terrible. And they're responding to a real thing that's happening, but. 
I don't see the solution as to like Washington State is like, you know, or California has has these equity agendas and, and students are being taught to, to uh, you know, denounce their privilege or whatever in one state and in the neighboring states. You have the opposite. This just doesn't seem like a solution to me at all. Okay, so you do you do something that I love in this piece, which is you talk about potential alternatives, potential solutions. Can you go? Uh, can you go into that a little bit? Sure, absolutely. And that's something that David French has been arguing a lot for, um, which is uh, that when you talk about like the really kind of the, like the the, uh, the 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 kind of abuses, you know, like there was that case in Las Vegas, you know, where it's a biracial kid. Um, he has a lawsuit right now or his family has a lawsuit. And it's a heartbreaking story because this is a um, he is biracial and his father is dead uh, and his mother is is black and he's being picked on but in a sort of what looks like you have to you know if you if you if you take the complaint at, at face value he's being essentially racially harassed uh you know in his school and he's being told horrible things about his own departed father you know uh, about because th- that essentially your your white father must have assaulted your um which i think was a nice way of saying raped uh his Wait, like his uh, teachers are saying this or who is uh, the, the, the teacher the allegation is essentially that the teacher uh, goaded uh, some of this behavior didn't stop some of this behavior i don't know the extent to which the allegation is that she engaged in it herself um but was you know on the worst claims but like allowed you know uh something that would be called under the law racial harassment um, and that's, uh, David French's, you know, idea is that you, 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 basically you have to wait for some particularly bad cases and you bring Title VI claims, um, which is that you can't have racial discrimination and, um, hostile environment harassment includes that. Now that has to be severe, persistent, and pervasive, but that was why I was bringing up the whole anguish idea because I think that was at least a, a somewhat, you know, not quite adequate, but nonetheless, you know, closer to the mark attempts to actually have something that looks like the real harassment standard. Now, interestingly, the severe persistent pervasive is the standard for student on student harassment when it's someone who's actually like working, you know, a teacher, if they're actually being, you know, aggressively mean to a student on the basis of race, the standard is actually she's held that's that professor, that teacher is held to a higher standard. So, so you could potentially, you know, for example, bring a lawsuit there. I think <laughs> given the climate, you probably wouldn't have a hard time finding someone to represent you. There's also, you know, the. I'm going to interrupt oh, sure. you. Real, I'm going to interrupt you real quick here because this is something that Chris Rufo, he was just on, uh, on the fifth column. I heard that last week. And, um, yeah, he had a, a you know, a great robust debate with, uh, yeah. with the guys there. And he pointed out, and I think this is, this is a, a valid concern. Should the onus really be on parents, especially poor, overworked, uh, you know, maybe have been homeschooling their ch- children for the past year, parents to take to, to, to like do these these cases? I thought that was actually a less persuasive argument than it sounded. Uh, for this reason, there are is that there are, are um, you know, I run a organization um, that where I have lawyers to defend the rights of high of of students in higher education. So I know that there are other organizations that are out there um, that would, you know, represent someone pro bono. And these and certainly if there weren't ones that were funded before, there are now given all the concern about this. So I don't think it necessarily comes down to an economic class thing. I think that there are, you know, organizations out there that if they could find a student in a similar situation would be happy to, um, you know, represent them either pro bono or on contingency where okay. the problem comes in is for conservatives is if you're if you think that you're basically just saying you don't want little children to feel you know mortified on the basis of their race and to be and the funny thing is like you wa- you watch people who claim to care about you know care about kids and and if it's about uh, someone doing this to to, uh, to to black kids, they rightfully are horrified. If it's to do it to white kids, they immediately start doing like, "Oh, your little hearings were hurt." And I'm like, "No, I actually would prefer no kids <laughs> be harassed on the basis of the race." Period. Um, and and the, the the fact that we are talking about children um, changes the discussion. And I sometimes wish we would actually sometimes break this discussion up even further and talk about maybe K through six, and then you know junior high school, and then high school, because the the rights uh, the, the rights that you have basically get less and less um, the the younger you get. So high school students have decent free speech rights. Sixth graders, you know, um, they really are very much, and third graders are really much in, in the care of, of their teachers. Yeah, which makes sense because they're children. Yeah, the, the the fact this is actually about children is what is one of those things that that, that watching some the way. Who cares about the kids? <laughs> 
Why won't somebody stop thinking about the children? So let's talk a little bit about the media's role in all this. And you wrote a little bit about this in your piece. What are you seeing from the media coverage? Yeah, um, I think some of it's been good, um, some of it not so much. And definitely I spent a, a sort of frustrating day watching people talk about the um, part of the Florida law. This was insane. This is like some of the – I criticize media all the time, but this just the complete conjuration of a fake story. So, yeah, sorry. I just – it drove me crazy. What's maddening about it is um, one of these DeSantis laws, or sometimes they're actually like school board decisions. It gets a little confusing. Um, included something about uh, representative surveys, um, about political leanings. Um, and this got t- turned around in Salon – as a mandatory, um, what is it, registry of political beliefs, you know, from professors and students. And it's like, wow, okay. And so I, I was dealing with this and being kind of like, but that's not really what the law says. And meanwhile, I think we sh- I'm all about data. Like, I, like, if you're saying that there's a viewpoint diversity problem in campus, you should actually be doing polling um, that's rigorous. And FIRE tries to do it. Just, just, just so we're clear for listeners who are unfamiliar the law and it's not long you can read it it basically says we should have a statistically significant uh statistically like robust representative survey and and if you read it and you're familiar with the climate survey yeah. that's what it is it's a, it's a survey saying are you free expressing your views so on now it does not explicitly say in the bill that we're going to ask you know teachers and kids about their politics but that's a safe assumption because to get useful data from a climate survey you sort of need to do that right yeah yeah no ex- exactly and and so it's one of the you know main issues that people talk about is the, the fact that it's politically monolithic. Perfectly legitimate to, to look into that. But what's amazing about this particular bill is, of course, we're getting blasted about where's fire on this, which happens within 30 seconds. And it's usually, sometimes sometimes people will actually send me articles in which I'm quoted towards the end, or Adam Steinbaugh is quoted towards the end, being like, where's fire on this? I'm like, where are how people know about the story? But we opposed the bill for, on different bases, you know, th- that very same day. But the misrepresentation of that was just kind of maddening. In other cases, I do feel like there's a, there's a sense that this is just... I, I feel like depending on what you listen to, there's a sense that this is... I, there was something that I was listening to on NPR that sounded a lot at least initially, like, oh, we're just trying to talk about, uh, we're just trying to talk about slavery and the conservatives don't want us to, to ever discuss slavery, um, uh, in K through 12. And that was, that's where the whole talking past each other thing came. I'm like, well, no, they're, they're really more talking about browbeating people on the basis of their race and giving them a very strong, you know, idea of, of racial separation, more or less, of, of racial essentialism, as it's called. So I, I haven't, I haven't been exactly thrilled with the coverage on that, but I do think it's improved at least a little bit. Except for Salah. Okay, here's, here's a headline. The rights attack on critical race theory, another battle in the Orwellian war against democracy. <laughs> Is this Orwellian? And, and and I ask because I'm sort of struggling with this. It does feel like, you know, uh, it, it feels like an attack on academic freedom. However, K-12 teachers don't have academic freedom in the first place. Well, and this is why I wish, like, if you're t- if you're concerned about identity politics, um, getting out of the ed schools and being too aggressive and leading to a situation in which people feel more divided than ever, um, then, you know, ask a lawyer, you know, ask an educator, like, how do I help address this? It wouldn't have been as sexy and spectacular as kind of like the Rufo slash Tucker Carlson explosion. Um, uh but at the same time, it would have, uh, you would have gotten a very clear, stay the, stay the hell away from higher education. Higher education is a completely different institution than K through 12. We rely on higher education to help us understand the universe, you know, a, a, as it is. That's not the function of, of, of K through 12. So by beginning it with this kind of round of going after higher ed, um, I think it's permanent, probably permanently given the stigma to the, to the entire movement to, to address this. I'm not sure that you can. Uh, successfully address some of the things that I do think parents, you know, uh, are legitimately concerned about, which is, you know, very, and the, and the thing that I keep on pointing, like trying to point out, and there's a reason why I point this out, is the parents I'm hearing from, they are, some of them are conservatives. A lot of them are liberals. And if you think about some of the, the, the ideas of racial essentialism, they go against small L liberalism. And I think honestly, the, Jesse and Katie, I think this is why we know each other. Like I'm a small L liberal. I'm also a relatively big L liberal, but there does seem to be that the two different sides of the culture wars are increasingly pushing away from sort of like some basic ideas of liberalism itself. Yeah. Yeah. And it's 
the inconsistencies are just really obvious. You know, <laughs> sure. I mean, especially like on the on the right when you talk about okay, conservatives, you know, uh, you want more hands off government, you want <laughs> more freedom. Okay, and then now you want to dictate whether or not the sixteen nineteen project can be taught in schools. And of course, none of this is new, as you point point out in your piece. In your piece, schools have always been political. Yeah, that that was one thing I did have to admit I snickered at was was someone saying it's like. We can't introduce politics into K through 12 curriculum, but I'm like, what, what? Like the, it's, it's, it's literally a political process. I, I think a lot of people are just like parachuting into this conflict with no sense of like, so like, again, when you say people saying introducing politics into really that they weren't in there before, really the state has no role in shape. This is one of the many reasons it's become a sort of insufferable, very low intelligence conversation. Yeah. You know, I also, I wonder. How different this would be. I can't remember who pointed this out, but somebody pointed this out on Twitter. There has been a lot of um, what might be maybe knee-jerk uh, repulsion of these bills because of who is bringing them to the table. Yeah, which I completely get because do I want Ted Cruz deciding what is in was, is in any student's curriculum? The answer is no. And I have to sort of grapple with that myself. Like, is part of my knee-jerk reaction to these bills the fact that they're coming out of, uh, out of red state legislatures? Yeah. Yeah, that's something that I I tell my staff um, is that it's hard to do this job. And we have people at FIRE who vote. We're we're more liberal internally than than conservative. Um, And to do this job, you know, when you're interviewing people, it's like, you know, people are going to hate you. Like, 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 if you do the, if you do this job correctly, people are going to, somebody's going to hate you, like, with, you know, every couple of weeks, someone new. Um, but that's, you know, p- you know, part of being principled. But the interesting thing is, so- in some ways, like having your friends be maybe angry at you, you know, something you can learn to live with, or having that family member who you'll get in arguments with at Thanksgiving is one thing. The, the harder thing to get used to is having people you really, really hate agreeing with you. <laughs> I've encountered this because I, I despise Kate. <laughs> agree on a lot of political stuff. <sighs> Yeah. The only answer in that situation is to start a podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really uh, good to talk to you. Th- thanks for having me. Uh, stay in touch um, and uh, forward me all hate mail. <laughs> Thank you so much, Greg. All right, Jesse, we're back. Just the two of us. Very, uh, very good guy. Very smart guy. I was glad we got to speak with him. Yeah, definitely. A couple of things that I wanted to point out. We didn't really discuss this in the interview, but a lot of people, if you like have been following this conversation online, a lot of people are saying things like, you know, critical race theory isn't being taught in school in K-12 schools. That is sort of technically true. It's not being typically taught in these schools. It's being implemented in these schools. Yeah, it's – and again, as he was saying, it's so complicated because there's this fuzzy line between like – classical critical race theory and then these DEI interventions and then it varies so much from classroom to classroom. It's just a mess right now. Yeah, it is. But talking to Greg did sort of change my mind a little bit because I did my first impulse when it comes to, you know, the government getting involved, the state's legislators getting involved in these cultural issues is that I just want them to stop um, because I like, especially when it comes to education, because our schools are so fucked up, especially after a year of pandemic, it seems like they should be focusing on things like, I don't know, teaching children to read, teaching children math, just these basic things that are like actually not happening in a lot of schools. Um, so, so this, this focus on these cultural, cultural war issues is, I think, uh, it's misplaced and oftentimes it's the whole point is really to make, uh, it's like it's campaigning, basically. Yeah, yeah, I think there's some of that. I mean, schools do a lot of different things, and they're gonna teach someone's values. So I just I think it's very there's versions of these laws I'd be for if they were very narrowly done. But I just think from what I've seen, there's so much potential for just like I mean, we we said this on in the interview. We don't need to relitigate it, but um, yeah. I did I did change my mind a little bit because instead of I think Greg is right. Like it just it is more nuanced and sort of you're in favor of these laws or you're not in favor of these laws. And if you had, you know, a narrow law, a law that said something like students cannot be compelled to renounce their privilege, would I be in favor of that? Kind of. Well, but a lot of those laws are, it's already, you can't right, right. force kids to adopt certain political creeds. Right. So I think it, some of it strikes me as um, 
redundant. But yes, if someone if someone was like, you can't force a white person to say why they feel guilty about being white, I'd be like, sure, whatever. I don't want that in public school. Yeah, that's sort of the point. It's just like children shouldn't be compelled to take these ideological positions. It's hard to sort of argue with that. Of course, a lot of these these laws are super fucking broad and will have major downstream effects that um that the the creators of them either don't care about or are seemingly unaware of. Yeah. We'll probably be dead by then. Oh, God, I hope so. Make it come fast. <laughs> I can't wait. Just can't fucking wait. Dude. I also realized through talking of Gre- talking with Greg how much, even though I'm I'm so skeptical of media, how much misinformation I absorbed about this about this uh, this entire debate. Oh, I I hate that now. If I'm look, I've, it's always been the case that uh, if I read. Breitbart or certain far left outlets, I know I need to be a little bit skeptical. I'm at a point where like on certain issues, I know that if I read a Washington Post piece, there's going to be at least one false claim. And that is so depressing, just the state of things right now. It is, it is. But I guess it's good that we're aware of it. Or is it bad to be, is it better just to like live in, live in this sort of blissful ignorance? I'm not actually sure about that. This goes back to that whole, like, it'd be better to be dead thing. Because then we wouldn't have to think about (laughs) any of this. All right. That's the solution right there. You heard it first here. Block them forwarded. (laughs) The pro-death podcast. Uh, Anything, anything else, Katie? Uh, I think that's it for this week. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single. And remember, there is a slippery slope from gender critical puppetry to white supremacist puppetry. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, the Blocked and Reported dating service cannot be held legally liable for anything that goes wrong on your dates.